0: Let's pray again, please. Oh, Father, what a reality that the blood of Jesus Christ speaks on our behalf. Thank you for the newness of life that we find in Christ. Father, thank you for the ongoing work that you're doing in us. Father, as we reach for our Bibles now, this is a familiar time to us. We sit still and we study the Word together. May your Holy Spirit use the Word of God to encourage and strengthen the people of God. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. It was the summer of 1984. Janet and I had only been married really a matter of weeks, a couple of months. Just celebrated 35 years that occasion. It's gone by at breakneck speed. So well, there we were in Huntington, West Virginia. I was finishing out my internship, uh, living in a little apartment. We candidated up in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. I took a position as minister of youth and music at a church there in Ephrata. We moved, we loved the parsonage that they had for us in downtown Ephrata. It was a wonderful church, a wonderful place to be, a wonderful time of life. A couple of months into a new marriage, a couple of months, a couple of weeks only into our new ministry. And then one night, the phone rang. The phone rang and it was my mother-in-law and she needed to tell us that Janet's father, only 51 years of age at that time, had a brain tumor. We were devastated. Fell That news fell on us like a ton of bricks and we recoiled, we prayed, we wondered. And then only a matter of about two weeks later, the phone rang again and it was my brother. He was finishing up his senior year of college in pensacola florida and he said van i need to tell you that i'm packing up my room i'm heading home i've been diagnosed with acute lymphatic leukemia it was overwhelming a brain tumor acute lymphatic leukemia two weeks apart months into marriage weeks into new ministry how many of you think that we prayed how many of you think that we called everybody we knew and asked them to pray Six months almost to the day that my mother-in-law called us to tell us about Janet's father's brain tumor. We stood together over here in Martinsburg at the Rosedale funeral and our tears dripped into the sod as we buried her father, 52 years of age. Almost 11 months to the day that my brother called me, we were there up in Michigan under an oak tree in a sandy little country cemetery, and there our tears fell into the sand, and we buried my brother, and God did not answer our prayers. Do you know that feeling? And what do you do with that? Well, we're poking around this summer in a series on prayer. We are studying our Bibles. We're poking around our Bibles is what I mean. And we are investigating and trying to challenge ourselves uh, to gain a better grasp of what does the Bible teach about prayer. And I think that it would be uh, difficult for us to to Pass over the passage of scripture that I invite you to turn to this morning in the book of James, it's chapter 5. I think that as we have this summer series ongoing on prayer, we must talk about this concept of praying in faith for healing. It's in the Bible. What do you do with that? Does God answer prayer? Does he he answer prayer all the time? What does this text mean? And you'll see what I mean in just a minute. It's it's very challenging. It it points to the reality that when we pray, God should move his hand and people should be healed. But let's just test it up against our personal experience. Uh, Let's think about Wednesday night prayer sheet right here. If you come around on Wednesday nights and you go to your class, there's a prayer sheet there. And let's say there's... Let's say there's 36 names on the prayer sheet. You tell me, speak up to me, those of you that come. Of the 36 names on the prayer sheet, how many of those are we praying for for physical healing? Say how many? 36. 26, most of them. A lot of them, almost all of them. We often pray for physical healing. It's a big part of our prayer life. But that in of itself raises some questions, doesn't it? I mean, you do know that God designed the body to heal, right? So early this morning, we didn't mention it for prayer in the third service here, but early this morning I received a text, uh, and uh, one of our families, the Golnits, have a boy going into sixth grade. He woke up with a hot appendix during the night. And so they wanted what? They wanted the church to pray, and rightly so. And so they load him up, and they take him to the hospital, and he is dealt with in the emergency room and they get to the surgeon and I assume this is the procedure taking place. Uh, But it raises questions in my mind. Okay, God's people are praying for a young boy in our church with a hot appendix and God's going to heal him. Praise God. But what about the pagan kid next door whose dad doesn't believe in God who doesn't go to church and he wakes up with a hot appendix and he goes to the same ER, goes to the same surgeon and he heals even faster than this boy. So God did design our bodies to heal, didn't he? And yet we pray an awful lot for physical healing. It's important to us. Our bodies matter. Well, I think that this is a really interesting subject in a very fascinating text this morning in James chapter 5. It would probably be good for us to just go to the text now and read so that you understand what I'm talking about here and how important this passage is in our series on prayer. Let's read what James wrote in James chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of... Of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth and then he prayed again and the heaven gave, heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. There's our text for this morning. I, I felt like I didn't finish verse 13. If anyone is, among you, suff, if, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. I think I left off part of that verse. He then goes into this idea that if anyone is among you sick, let him call for the elders and let them pray. Well, this is just a remarkable passage of Scripture. And in some ways, we don't really know what to do with this passage of Scripture, especially when we line it up against our experience. Now, we have to be very careful with testing God's Word against our life experience. But I really like it when what I see and observe matches what the Bible tells me. For example... When I read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 1 and 2, it's not very popular in the scientific world, and, and you can be esteemed as some kind of a moron for believing that God created everything the way he did, ex nihilo, out of nothing. But then when I read the account, and I understand what's being said there, and then I look at the world around me, I see that, that it matches exactly my observations. And in fact, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 fits what's going on in the world around me much more comfortably than this idea that everything came from nothing and then evolved into something. And so I really like it when my Bible matches my experience. But I have to tell you, when I open my Bible to this passage, my experience just doesn't fit. We prayed. We prayed for Janet's father. He was a fine, godly man. He was only 51 years old at the time of the tumor in surgery, and brain surgery. 52 when we buried him. My brother was 21 years old when we put him in the ground. What do you do with that? We prayed. We asked God. And you can give stories similarly. I know you can. You pray. You fast. You might even call the elders and you can say, Pastor Van, I've done this. I've asked the elders to come and anoint with oil, lay hands on and pray, and they still died. They still have leukemia, or we can claim that God answered, but the person that is out of their sickbed is now in their wheelchair. They didn't really get healed. They just got kind of bumped up to an, another stage. Was that really healing? Is that what James is talking about? And so I thought it would be good for us to, to dig into this passage and to do that and to help us with our thinking. Uh, to lay a foundation. I want to make three statements about the passage. The third statement after we make that statement is going to lead us to ask 10 questions about the passage. All right. And so I hope you have your food in a crock pot and that it's going to be okay. But this is an amazing passage of scripture. It's really fascinating. Let's begin with statement number one. We've just read our text. It really said some interesting things. We'll be rereading it because on your first look, you might not have picked up on everything. But the first thing I want to say about the text is that this is a puzzling text, and it doesn't seem to be true. It's puzzling to me because it does not seem to be true. As I've been saying, it just doesn't seem to line up with life experience and what we're seeing happen even here in our Bible church. One of the things I think you can agree with me, though, on number one is it is specifically about prayer. This passage is about God's people praying. In fact, the word prayer is used seven times in six verses. It's used, some form of the word prayer is used in every single one of the six verses. James, wouldn't you agree with me, wants us to understand something about prayer in this passage. We know that. Secondly, it seems to speak with such certainty about answered prayer. But that doesn't seem to fit our life experience in praying for healing. I mean, let's just let our eyes go back to the passage. If you call the elders, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So there it is. There's, a, there's great expectation in this passage. Thirdly, I don't know if you picked up on it on the first time through, but I think we also have to agree that James is also talking about sin in this passage. James is talking about sin. And if he has committed sins in the middle of 15, he will be forgiven. And then this verse 16, is very interesting. Therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So what do you do with that? So a person passes away. Do you conclude that Either the elders didn't have faith, they didn't use the right kind of oil, or the person didn't confess the right sins. So what an interesting passage. And so it's puzzling because it just doesn't seem to be really true. Second statement I want to make, letter B, is that this is somewhat of a confusing text and therefore it is easily abused. It's somewhat of a confusing text, so it is easily abused. So let me just mention a couple of things that... Um, throughout history have been pointed at at this passage and things that people have gotten out of it. They're, this is not exhaustive, but let me just mention a couple of more familiar concepts. One is, in uh, a certain uh, religion, they exercise a sacrament called extreme unction. That's an older name for it. It is it is the sacrament of anointing. And this is for those who are dying. Now they get it out of this passage. It works something like this. You call the priest. Your loved one is dying. First of all, your loved one is dying. They're on their deathbed. They might be in the ER. They, uh, they I mean, the ICU. They might be in a hospital bed. They might be in a hospital bed in your living room, shriveled up. Uh, whatever the circumstances are, it appears that they're going to die. And so you call your priest. He comes, and he has a vial of of oil that is special for this occasion and he, he says certain prayers and he anoints in a certain way and he's alone when he does it, he gets people out of there. And the idea is that if you have this sacrament of extreme unction or of anointing, right before you die, see many of the people are so close to death they don't even know that it happened, that what will happen is that God will see what happened and he will favor that one who dies then and passes away and they will not have to serve in uh, uh, purgatory as long. They won't have to, they won't have to bear up on so much in purgatory and get prayed out. They can get prayed out faster. And I want to tell you, that's not in the Bible and that's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about people dying. This is about people getting healed. And and furthermore, it absolutely, that sacrament of anointing, absolutely contradicts what the apostle Paul says about our salvation in Christ. The apostle Paul says, for by grace, that's unmerited favor, for by grace you are saved through faith, not by any works of your own, lest you would esteem yourself as somehow worthy of better treatment than other people because of your works. And you would boast about it if you could. The Apostle Paul made it very clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that we, at the foot of the cross, lay down our sin. The Lord Jesus takes our sin. He forgives us. He gives us His righteousness. We stand justified in the presence of a holy God. And there, there is no... Sacrament of anointing in Scripture, and it is certainly not in this passage, but that's where they get it. Secondly, I want you to know that some people believe, based on this passage, that illness or sickness is always a result of one's sin. Now, they believe that if you are a follower of Christ, that if you get sick, you shouldn't get sick, that believers shouldn't get sick, and it's because of sin based upon this passage. Thirdly, some people believe that Christians need faith for healing, not medicine. And they go to an extreme in this area. Sometimes this is reflected in the preaching and platform ministry on cable networks or late at night television of a televangelist. And he's got people in wheelchairs and people with crutches. And he's telling them that they do not need to be as sick as they are, they don't need that wheelchair. They, they can be restored if they have enough faith. And he might use oil. He might anoint with oil. He may bump them with his hand or his fist. Uh, they might be slain in the spirit and knocked over backwards. He might sprinkle some water out of the Jordan River on them if they give a $20 bill or whatever. It's just amazing. But if you have enough faith, you just shouldn't be sick. I want to tell you, I I don't think the Bible teaches that. Some people will point to Isaiah 53 and they will say, well, don't you know that it's by his stripes we're healed and in Christ we just shouldn't get sick. That is an absolute distortion of that entire passage. He's really not talking about diseases of the body He's directly talking about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and how he took our sin upon himself and spiritually he delivers us from our own sinfulness. And so it is a confusing text and therefore it is abused in some of those ways. Some people will even allow their children to get very sick Children have even died because their parents believed that God was going to heal them and that they just had enough faith and therefore they were not treated appropriately with blood transfusions or for sugar diabetes or whatever. And this goes all over the place, and I don't think that's what this passage is teaching at all. That young man in our church that had a hot appendix, they didn't call the elders this morning, and there's good reason for that. I mean, you want to get to a good surgeon. Because there's medicine and doctors, and then God will allow that body to heal. So let's um, take our third statement, and let's just recognize that this is indeed a challenging text, and that it raises many questions. It raises many questions. I've listed 10 that I want to click off here, and I will try indeed to do that with some clarity. The first question as we approach the text is right away we see... That James is talking about suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? And immediately he says, the response to that suffering is to pray. And so the question we want to ask ourselves, number one is, what kind of suffering is James talking about? Because maybe that is a little bit of a clue to the direction he's going about the need for healing from this sickness. What kind of suffering is referred to? Well, the first thing we understand when we look at it is that it is suffering that comes from enduring evil treatment by people. When you look at the meaning of that word in its original Greek grammar, the idea is that this is evil treatment from people. And then that triggers in our mind a very important question we ask ourselves, and that is, Well, who was it that James was writing to, and why was he writing this letter, and what were their circumstances that he would be addressing their suffering? And so, we only need to flip back a page, and there we are in chapter 1, verse 1, and in the ESV it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, verse 2, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And on it goes. Immediately, we recognize there's a couple things. When I was a young guy in college, I memorized the first part of James 1 in the King James Bible. And it went something like this. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So what's he talking about? This dispersion, this scattering of the tribes. What you need to recognize is that James was writing at a time when persecution was on the increase, that the identifiable group of believers had been spread out in a dispersion. They had to flee for their very lives because of their Christianity. Let's roll it into our lives today. We are an identifiable group of believers here in Jefferson County. We live for Jesus. We try to teach our boys and girls about Jesus. We have baptisms and, and we're out in the woods and everybody's invited and people know that there's something about that group of believers. And then everything flips and we no longer have a constitution to protect us. We no longer have a leadership that fears God. In fact, we have leadership that hates God and everything socially and culturally and politically has shifted. And now, as has happened throughout the centuries, Christians are being persecuted, and we are hearing stories daily about our families being disrupted, about their homes being bashed in, their businesses being ruined, even their children getting run over by Roman chariots. I mean, it's just bad. Once in a while, you hear about one of our elders getting eaten by a lion. It's crazy. And finally, you recognize that we can no longer stay here and survive, and so they scattered by the persecution. On the one hand, do you see what God did? He took the church and he spread it all over the world. And everywhere they went, they started a church. On the other hand, it was a desperate time. It was very difficult. Children have been abused, killed, spouses lost, businesses bashed, credentials ripped away, bank accounts impounded, everything taken from you. And so what happens is instead of an identifiable group here, we now have a group up on the side of the mountain at a hunting camp in Morgan County. And then we got another group up in Back Creek Valley over in Berkeley County. We got another another group of families that ended up going south by Winchester up on the side of the mountain outside of Winchester and were spread out. And and we're hearing and some of us get around a little bit and we realize that our people are spread out all over and everywhere they go it's difficult and they're discouraged and they're defeated and and they're even angry and and some are very frustrated and even questioning God, why are you allowing this? And we recognize they need encouragement. And so we think, who could write a letter out of our church? I know who could do it. James Shupe could write a letter. And so he writes the letter of James and we take it and we give it to one of our strong young men and they go and they find their way and we get the letter circulated to our people groups and they are being encouraged because here it is. Count it all joy. Are you kidding me? What's he talking about? Count it all joy when you face all of these trials. Our lives are being disrupted and destroyed. And so one of the things we recognize back in chapter 5 now and our notes nearby because it will help you and we're going to have to go quickly is that this suffering that's being talked about here is suffering that is from the outside. Great trials and tremendous difficulties have come upon the people. In fact, if you have your NIV here this morning, letter B, it, this word that is translated in the ESV, is any among you suffering, let him pray. In your Bible, in the NIV, it says trouble. Is any of you in trouble? It's, that's what it means. Are you in trouble? Are you having problems? It refers In its core meaning to evil blows that come from outside, not physical illness from the inside. Letter C, this word that's translated suffering or trouble is the idea that it can be physical, it can be mental, it can be emotional, it can be personal, it can be financial, it can be marital. It's, it's these outward pressures that create trouble. So the first thing we see when we start into this text is that, it, is it, first of all, it's a reminder of who he's writing and why it is important for him to write this letter to these suffering people. And we recognize that there is, at some level, outside pressure put upon them, and the wheels have fallen off their wagons. And he says... If you're suffering, pray. You need to pray. And we kind of know that, but often we rather lose our temper than pray. Often we rather just lay down and take a nap than pray. Some people rather get high or drunk than pray. They can't deal with their problems. And he says, "If, if you're suffering, then pray. The flip side of the coin, he says, is anyone cheerful? Hey, sing a song. The idea there is make a a joyful noise on a stringed instrument, actually. And so that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life in a nutshell, actually. If you're suffering, pray. If you're not suffering, sing. That's what we do all day long. We pray and we sing. We pray and we sing. That's not a bad little capturing of the Christian life right there. Well, I see another question coming because my eyes have moved to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? All right, I think I know what that means. Sick, I've been sick. What does this word mean? What kind of sickness then is he referring to in verse 14? So he says, let's just read what he says. And this is what makes me ask the question. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Because I think if you're sick, you ought to call the doctor. He calls the elders and let them pray over him. I think you ought to take medicine anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So there's some malady here, for sure, that is debilitating. Somehow this person is suffering to the point that there is a manifestation even of sickness. And then we decide to go to the shelf and pull our lexicon down, and and we look up in our lexicon, well, what does this word mean? The word that is translated Is anyone among you sick? And you say to yourself, self, I wonder how that word is used in other places in the New Testament, the exact same Greek word translated sick right here. How is that word translated in some other passages? And I'm glad you asked. Let's do a little Bible study and let's look that up. You see, we recognize right away, letter A, that it could be physical sickness, And let's look at that at Matthew chapter 10. So flip in your Bibles with me and stay with me. And let's just uh, look at this. We're looking now for how this word translated sick is used other places in our New Testament. We kind of want to learn about this word. So we're in Matthew chapter 10. And we're looking at verse 8. Look what it says. This is where Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles. On one of their early ministries, he's empowered them. In fact, if you you look at verse 7, he says you're to preach, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So their message is a message of warning. And then he says to them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And right there, the word, heal the sick... Doesn't seem to be any other reason to think of it as anybody that's sick. You know, you got measles, smallpox, whatever it is got. Probably have leprosy could be included there. Go out there and heal the sick. It is the exact same word that's used in the book of James there. That if someone is sick, so that raises in our minds the possibility right away that this surely could represent physical sickness. Or, though... We continue our word study, and we recognize that it could be emotional or spiritual weakness. It could be emotional or spiritual weakness. Let's continue our Bible study, and let's flip over to Acts chapter 20, and look at verse 5. Acts chapter 20, verse 5. Take a look. Look what it says. Excuse me, verse 35. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. This is the Apostle Paul in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. It's a very emotional passage. Uh, They're they're very close. There's a lot of uh, emotion in here. And he's giving a speech to these elders that he thinks he will never see them again. And then he says to them, giving them instruction, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, and this is not recorded in the Gospels anywhere, but Paul heard it, knew it, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when you look at that, he's reminding them of this saying of Jesus, and they're supposed to help weak people. The idea there, and that's our word. The very word that is translated in James five 14, is any among you sick, is the word that Paul uses here. In any way we can help, we must help the weak. And you don't get the idea here that it's sick people with measles or appendicitis, or a brain tumor. You get the idea. It's people who need material help, people who need encouragement. Well, let's continue quickly, and let's look at a couple more passages. How about flipping to the next, chap, next book of Romans, chapter 5. And this is very interesting. Look at how this word is used in Romans, chapter 5, verse 6. Look what it says. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, we know this isn't talking about physical sickness. It's talking about spiritual weakness. And the word translated sick in James 5.14 is the exact same word that in this passage is translated weak, spiritually weak. Okay, so this raising some questions. Let's look up a couple more. And by the way, there's about 20 of these in our New Testament, and most of them are used for this idea and especially in the epistles are used for the idea of some kind of a weakness more than actual sickness. So that raises a question in our minds. What's he really talking about here? All right. Romans chapter five, six, we already looked it up. Let's flip over to 14 1 and take a look at that. And this is the area of doubtful things. And the idea of being careful, those who are stronger, stronger brother versus weaker brother. And right away, we we encounter this word again in our word study. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's some good advice. And the word translated in James 5.14 for sick is the word weak right there. A spiritually weaker brother. There's one more, 1 Corinthians 8 9. Take a look at this one. Paul uses this in writing his letter to the Corinthian believers. And we could go on and on, but I just represented a few here so that you could get the idea of what I'm saying. Because sometimes when you have a question, how is it that this could be? how is it that it doesn't really match and what is he talking about we look up in the bible other places that that same word is used and what does it mean there and so in first corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 look what it says for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor that so that you by his poverty ...might become rich. And there the idea is... ...the idea of his poverty or poorness... ...is this weakness. It's the same word that was translated sick. So it's very, very interesting. So let's go back to our question number two. We're looking at our notes. We have our Bibles open to James chapter 5. And we're asking ourselves questions... ...about this challenging text. And the first, second question we've come to is... ...what kind of sickness is referred to... ...in verse 14... And letter A, it could be physical, but when we read on, we recognize that it could be emotional or spiritual weakness. And so, actually, it would not be wrong to circle that word sick, put an arrow in your margin, and write the word weak, broken down, struggling, in deep need. Okay? So, how are we gonna know the difference? It's been translated sick, it seems like it's sick. The person is in some kind of trouble that they can't move. The elders have to go to them. And it talks about healing. So it does seem like the body is involved. So how do we know we have to go with context? And you should write that in all capital letters. How do we know? Context. And I'm suggesting to you that what James is doing is he's writing to people who are so broken down, they need encouragement... And it seems best to understand this use of the word sick to be the weakness and suffering that results from spiritual defeat and unconfessed sin. Sin there has a really tiny little line, but you can fit it in there. Unconfessed sin. So here's what I'm thinking. The idea is that the church has been scattered, they've been persecuted, people are defeated, people are discouraged spiritually to the degree that they are weak in their faith, they need encouragement, even to the degree that some of them have allowed sin to come into their lives. Others have used other sinful things, maybe as escape mechanisms. People do that all the time in our culture. And as a result, they are now breaking down in their bodies, especially if this goes on for a long time. You can actually get disease or you can have ailments, high blood pressure, the residual effects of that, a digestive system that's not working correctly because of worry and stress and anxiety. And now you're breaking down and you're in great distress and you don't know what to do about it. And James says, is any among you sick? We are going to at least assume that the body is involved in this, but the idea must be here at some level, that there is a weakness that has brought this on and that that is largely brought on by spiritual weakness, by discouragement, by being defeated in the context of the passage. We also know that sin is used in the passage. And that's part of the context. He's talking about sin in the same passage that he's talking about prayers for healing. Let's go to our third question. Our third question is, why call the elders and not doctors? And I think that's not that difficult to answer. It's because James is teaching them that you need to emphasize the priority of prayer. The the priority need in their life is for prayer to overcome spiritual weariness and sin-induced suffering. It is also possible at some level that in this culture, as in like medieval times, pastors... Spiritual leaders, priests, were people who administered to the sick and helped take care of sick people. There were no doctors. And so it's possible that the elders were there to assist in some way in helping make that person more comfortable and seeing to their physical needs. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of James, on this passage, writes this. Those who have been defeated in the spiritual battle do not in the spiritual battle or realm do not need to hear opinions of human wisdom. They need to be strengthened by the power of God through their leaders' prayers. I wonder if you've ever been there before. You you are distressed. You can't shut your mind off. You've broken out in hives. You're having physical reaction. You've thrown up in the toilet. Your digestive system doesn't work right. And the elders come and they sit with you and you talk and they minister and you pray, and everything about you just went, This is exactly what I needed today. I needed help. I'm falling apart. I'm a wreck. And my body's even breaking down because of this. James knows that they need the priority of prayer and spiritual leaders ministering to them. Fourth question, so what is the significance of the oil? That's very interesting. Let's go back and let our eyes go to the text. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, let's uh, pull our lexicon back off the shelf and let's recognize that the word anointing there is used as a Greek word translated into English, anoint, that is not the word that is most commonly in our New Testament or Bible used for ceremonial anointing, but it is the idea of a rubbing, pasting it on. That's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's the end-all answer, but I thought it was worth noting that... um, The idea here is that they would rub the oil. And so that brings immediately to mind that there could be what James is talking about here, some medically uh, assisted help with the oil or it's medicinal, letter A. So it could be the significance of the oil is to be noted medically. And then an example from our Bibles would be Luke chapter 10, verse 34. It's a story that's very familiar. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. He's going up to Jerusalem. And uh, the guy gets beat up, the priest and the Levite let him lay there in his blood and gore and being robbed and naked, and the Samaritan comes along and, and he takes care of him. And one of the things that it says in Luke 10, 34 is that he rubbed oil on his wounds. So could it be that James is saying, as the elders, you go to that person who is sick They're on their couch, they're in their room in a hospital bed or they're in the hospital and the elders gather around and they rub oil on that person to help them feel better. That's getting a little creepy. But maybe that's part of what James was referring here. Some of you are, you need medicine. I think that's possible. Some people believe very strongly that's what James is teaching. The letter B, we could look at this metaphorically. What's the significance of the oil that the elders bring? Maybe it's a metaphor. We all love Psalm 23, for example. And in Psalm 23, we know that in verse 5, it it, it says there, the Shepherd psalm, David said that the Lord, as though he were a shepherd uh, towards me and I'm a sheep, that he anointeth my head with oil. Hmm. How many of you find comfort in that? Well, actually, I haven't thought about that too much. But yeah, I find comfort in Psalm 23. And your comfort is brought on by the fact that you think that God's going to dump a five-gallon pail of oil over your head, right? No. You know that that's not talking there as you receive comfort from the sh- from the shepherd's psalm and from my heavenly father who's my shepherd and I'm a sheep. I mean, maybe David is thinking about when he was a shepherd boy and he was indeed and he understood that an- the animals and-, and that he had a vial of oil and sometimes when a certain black fly or a certain gnat would come around and it was that time of the year for them or they were in a... A certain area where the conditions were right in the grass and these bugs were coming out of the grass that he would take that oil and he would rub it into his sheep's head and into their ears where the flies like to get and lay their eggs and and, and he would rub it on his head and and, oh, the sheep really liked that because it took those gnats away. This is a metaphor though for what? For soothing, for, for ministering to you. I want to comfort you. I want to meet your needs. I will anoint your head with oil. Some people think it represents the Holy Spirit. Uh, You can look that up in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. It it talks about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And some people think that oil in the Bible is sometimes used as an imagery or a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, and it could be that. you say, what do you think, Pastor Van? I think that it's less likely that it was medicine. It's more likely that it was symbolic of the Holy Spirit or some representation of soothing comfort. It's possible that there was medicinal value in there as well. And These people had needs. They didn't have medicine. They were far out in remote areas, and the elders would go and find them, and they would take healing oil And we all know what oils can do today. And so there you go. And so maybe there was something to that. Well, let's read on. We have another question, and we're going to click these off pretty quickly. Don't panic. Who is praying the prayer of faith? The one who is sick or the elders? Let's let our eyes go back to the text. And the prayer of faith, so they've anointed him with oil. Oh, it says, in the name of the Lord. Some people connect the oil with the name of the Lord. I don't really understand that, but it is to be done in the name of the Lord. So we would say, in Jesus' name, or Heavenly Father, in your name, we will anoint this individual with oil. And and then the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Whose prayer of faith? It's the elders' prayer of faith. So there is something about the faith of the elders that is so strengthening that it gives hope and it gives healing. Sixth question, is James making an unequivocal guarantee of answered prayer for healing? The only answer I could come up with is yes. Look what the text, look what it says. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. ding I mean, how else are you going to take that? If words mean anything. James is teaching them that they can be healed from their situation. But I will say that that makes me think that there is some qualification or some identification with sin-induced or defeat and discouragement that has gotten them to the point that they are so down and so discouraged that they are literally physically sick. I again warn about using our life experience to, measure the, to use it as the gauge of Scripture, but this simply does not match what we experience. God in His providence on occasion will answer prayers. My dear brother, Rod Malad, who will be home leading our men's ministry soon, his mother was diagnosed four years ago or so with pancreatic cancer. I mean, when you hear pancreatic cancer, don't you think that's a death sentence? It's a death sentence i think the survival rate of pancreatic cancer is four percent it's a death sentence people prayed i don't know if they called the elders and anointed with oil uh, but we know that god can heal without oil we know of story we see in the new testament jesus regularly healed the disciples healed and they didn't anoint with oil Our dear friend, our new friend, Josue Dan was here a couple weeks ago, the young Hungarian brother who's going to seminary. His father and mother came in from Hungary. They were at my dining room, my kitchen table for dinner that Sunday, and we enjoyed visiting through the interpretation of translation of uh, Josue with his father, uh, and they have 10 children, and, he, and Joshua's father sat at my dining room table two, two or three weeks ago and told the story that there, he had a daughter who was about, I think, 10 or 12 years old at the time. She was very, very sick. They were very, very concerned. He was distressed. He walked into her room, and he said, Father, I don't know what to do other than to pray and commit her to you. And he prayed, God, would you please heal her? He turned to go. He was discouraged. He thought she was not going to live. She got up off her bed and began to get dressed. And, and he said, what are you doing? He said, You've, she said, Papa, you prayed and I'm well. How often does that happen? I was on the phone with a dear pastor friend not long ago and catching up with him. And I asked him, I said, tell me about your one son that you told me years ago, you were holding him in your arms. He was about four years old. If I recall, he had significant issues. And he said, I, we gave up. There was no hope. And I held him in my arms in the rocking chair all night long, waiting for him to slip into the presence of the Lord. And he never did. Oh, he said he's 23 years old. He's on the pastoral staff of a big church in Lancaster. God answered prayer, didn't he? In those situations without oil. So what's the big deal about the oil? And as James is making an unequivocal guarantee of answered prayer for healing... Clearly, we have prayed over people, we have laid hands on people, we have prayed in faith believing, we have anointed with oil, and they have died. And so the unequivocal guarantee of the deliverance, in my mind, in this passage, is connected with the sin-induced sin, the sin-induced illness. That you have been so defeated, you have been so discouraged, you have given up on God, the elders come, they lay on hands, they pray, they anoint with oil, you confess your sin, you get right with God, and your anxiety leaves, your your problematic um, symptoms go away, and you are restored to health, and God always answers that prayer. I don't really know what else to do with that. Question number seven. Which is related to what I've just been talking about. Does sin have anything to do with the weakness... Or sickness? Yes, I believe it does. This individual is weakened to the point of being sick because of the weight of unrepentant sin. The weight of unrepentant sin. You see this reflected in David himself in Psalm 32 where his bones waxed old within him. Question number eight, what is the significance of confessing sin to one another for healing? Let's let our eyes go to the text. Pick it up at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed and the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working in you Elijah was a man of with a nature like ours of like manner of us and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit question number eight What is the significance of confessing sin to one another in this passage for healing? I think it is the idea that we guard against spiritual defeat and spiritual discouragement and even the physical illness that can result from unconfessed sin. So we are making sure we're right with God and we're making sure that our bad decision isn't leading to the breaking down of our physical body even. Question number nine is James teaching that rain-stopping prayer is to be the norm for the church. Yikes. Hey, bad storm coming, it's day camp. Stop the rain, man. Have a little faith. You see what I mean about not quite lining up with our experience? I think that Elijah is an example of the power of prayer and a challenge to the church To emulate the kind of faith that Elijah, a normal guy like us, had such faith in God that God did great things through him at that time. And I think it's a model. I I would, I would, uh, I've been with people before. um, I can think of a situation where a guy uh, wanted to divorce his wife. It was a bad situation. And I was trying to talk him out of it. And, And here's what I said I said, Look, man, you got your back up against the sea. It's desert to the north, it's desert to the south and the Egyptians are coming at you. You need to count on God to part the sea. What was I saying? That God's going to like take his house and split it or it was it was the idea that only God can deliver here, right? It's the idea that God has to do the work. And I think Elijah is held up. Hold this up. That's a great illustration. Let God part the waters. Well, is God going to part the waters in my life today? I don't know. Maybe not. Sometimes God chooses to say no to prayers. My father-in-law was godly. My younger brother was godly. And God chose not to heal them. Their days were written in his book before any one of them came to be. God did not mess up and God did not fail. And Elijah is a standard of us to say, you know what? He is a normal guy, and you can pray in faith, believing like I, Elijah. Question number 10. Do the elders of Fellowship Bible Church practice this teaching? And the answer might surprise some of you, and it's yes. Yes. Not very often. You need to understand that when it is requested by the individual who is sick, we do this. I think that idea of the individual, the emphasis in the passage of the individual being the one who makes the request is to expose the hard attitude of the sick person. I am ready. I am ready for my spiritual leaders to come in and I'm ready to dump my garbage on them. I'm ready for help. I need help. It's humility. Maybe it will happen more after this week. Do the elders of Fellowship Bible Church practice this teaching? Yes. And we do it in a direct reflection, letter B, of what James is teaching. We do anoint with oil. I brought my little bottle of oil with me. There's, uh, this um, is um, olive oil from Aldi's, I think. <laughs> Some people are very concerned that it come from the Holy Land and And my jar, which is a very nice jar, came my little bottle. It's a syrup bottle from Cracker Barrel. And I think it works very well for my oil bottle. Wouldn't you agree? And uh, we gather around the person who's sick. We have examined our own hearts as elders. We've done this in the C.W. Shipley hallway. We've done it up in the hospital with people. We've done it in people's living rooms. Sometimes the people have just been diagnosed with something and they, they just really want God to touch their body. And we'll do it. I, I, it doesn't seem to be sin-induced illness. We make no guarantee that our prayer will be answered in response. I think, that, I think that that unequivocal answer has to do with forgiveness of sin that clears up sickness. They'll sit in a chair. We'll gather around. We've examined ourselves. We read Scripture. We read this passage and then you need to know that if you call on the elders to do this, I will ask this question. We will look at you and we will say, now, have you examined your hearts and can, can you think of any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there any offense that you need to clear up? Is there anything that has broken you down sinfully? And, and I've, on different occasions, people have said, no, I have meditated even in the dark hours of the night. I've been asking God to show me if there's any unconfessed sin in my life, and there is not. We'll still anoint with oil. We examine our own heart that we don't fall. I, I just don't know what else to do with the passage. James said to do it, so just do it. What's the oil mean? I don't know, but James said to do it, so do it. I don't think that's all bad. In light of the context dealing with the confession of sin, along with the one who is sick, we spend time examining ourselves for any unconfessed sin before praying. I think it's a serious thing to ask somebody if they have unconfessed sin in their lives if you haven't examined your own heart for unconfessed sin in your own life. It's a serious thing to be an elder. It's a serious thing to be called to the bedside of somebody who wants you to anoint them with oil, lay hands on them, and pray. And so in conclusion, what do, we, what, do we, what do we conclude? Number one, spiritual weariness and sin, I want you to know, is not the source of all sickness. But it can be the source of sickness, even very serious sickness. I think that's true. Number two, spiritual defeat and sin-induced illness is more common than we think in the church. I think that's true. I think we have encountered that on occasion, and I've walked away from bedsides at times, and I've thought to myself, that person is sick because of sin. That person is sick because of not dealing with things in their lives for for decades. That person is sick because they have gone to the wrong sources for relief from their anxiety, and now they're an addict. One of the primary roles of elders is to pray. Don't you get that out of this passage? That an important role of the elders is to pray. Do not be afraid to call on your elders to pray for you. Number 4, I think that we need to recognize that prayer is powerful and we are to pray in faith. We are to pray in faith believing like Elijah as our model. It's almost time to go. I want to leave one little image in your mind. We're praying. Aunt Mabel fell off a stool changing a light bulb in her kitchen and she broke her neck. I just made that up. We're going to pray for Aunt Mabel because she broke her neck. We love our Aunt Mabel. We love her donuts. We want her to be healed. And we're going to pray for Aunt Mabel to be healed. Number one over here on the spectrum is... (laughs) Ain't no way Aunt Mabel's gonna get well. Pack the station wagon, we're going to a funeral home. Over here's a 10, and it is God's gonna heal Aunt Mabel. Whatever it is, the 39 things or 36 things on the Wednesday night prayer sheet. How often do you prayer down the list and you're looking at it? And you got a prodigal kid, and you got a alcoholic, and you got a you got Lyme's disease, and you got Paralysis and you got a young boy with a crooked spine that they're trying to straighten out and where are you on the scale? Elijah's over here. Watching cartoons and eating popcorn are over here. This ain't gonna happen. I think one of the things we need to get out of this message is that we need to pray with a greater faith. We might even need to ask God for the ability to have a greater faith. How often do we pray at five or below towards one rather than five and above towards 10 in faith believing? I'm telling you, you know, before we started this passage, I don't have all the answers to this. But what is James teaching? He's teaching that the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people avails much. Look at Elijah as your example. The standard is Elijah. I don't know that God thinks we can stop the rain every week with our prayers. You're going to find that your experience doesn't match up with the, your exposition of the text. But I think the lesson is we're to pray. And the elders are to pray. We're to examine our hearts. Sin can cause illness. God will forgive and heal when it's sin-induced illness. Examine your hearts. Let's stand and close in closing prayer. And so Father, we thank you for this text. It's very challenging. It, it stirs our minds. it raises more questions. It drives us to study your word. Would you help us at Fellowship Bible Church in our summer series on prayer, to be more like Elijah and less like Doubting Thomas? Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for our elders. Help us to take these responsibilities very seriously. Help us all to regularly examine our hearts, lest discouragement and weakness and defeat even cause our bodies to break down and make us sick. In Jesus' name we pray, counting on you to help us and guide us through another week. Amen. Amen. You've been very patient. If you're a parent picking up a kid in junior church, give him a $5 bill or something, okay? We do not do the chairs today.